This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Dexsecure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Tom McLaughlin about what to do when the servers go away. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 129. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn, and you are listening to Serverless Chats. Hey, Jeremy, what's going on? Oh, it's been a busy week. I just uh, had a very busy Tuesday. Uh, I posted a tweet about this, but essentially we recorded a podcast, as you remember. Then I uh, was on a roundtable with Jeff Barr and Alex Debris for the DynamoDB, a decade of innovation with DynamoDB. Then I published my newsletter. Then I gave a talk at that DynamoDB event on serverless and DynamoDB. And then when that was over with, I had to go and work in my basement for, I don't know, three hours or so trying to get it finished up because I had an electrician coming who actually came today and did some work. So yeah, it was uh, it was busy. So I actually, uh, like, I, I think I've duct taped myself to the chair so that I don't fall over. I'm so exhausted. Well, I'm really glad that you uh, stepped out to get some water to stay hydrated. And honestly, so for listeners who don't know what day it is when we recorded this, we're recording this on a Thursday. And at first I thought you were like, <laughs> Jeremy, I thought you were like, man, it's been really busy. I've had a really busy Tuesday. And I was like, no one tell this poor man <laughs> it's actually Thursday. Wait, it's Thursday already? <laughs> it's already Thursday. And here we are recording again with a guest who is famous for asking, what do we do when the server goes away? And then beyond that really um, substantial question, this guest also wrote yesterday, which was a Wednesday on Twitter, Tomorrow, I will record a podcast while wearing a blue velour tracksuit because Business Radical is how I roll. So, Jeremy, will you please introduce who this mystery guest is and then confirm or deny whether or not he really is wearing a blue tracksuit? I will. And I will tell you this. This is a hard guest to get. I mean, I actually invited this guest on as one of the first guests for, <laughs> for serverless chats way back in 2019. You know, we talked to all his people. We went through all the agencies, everybody we had to do to finally get this guy. But we finally have him, and we have him on the show. He is an AWS serverless hero, a longtime cloud infrastructure engineer, and he's been working with new teams for, I don't know how, how many years now, uh, helping them to adopt serverless. Tom McLaughlin, hey, Tom, thank you so much for being here. Kyle, thank you for having me. I can show up here because this is one of the nice benefits of being in between jobs. So there's nobody from PR to tell me where I can appear or not appear. So I start the new one next week. So we, that's why I was like, yeah, we have to get this recorded now. <laughs> Little do you know, in, a, in a, about three minutes, there's going to be a knock on your door and it's just going to be like someone's secret from PR in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, super glad you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in terms of what you mean by a longtime cloud infrastructure engineer who's helping teams adopt serverless? Tell us a little bit about that work, and then we'll dive into, you know, deeper questions around such topics. Sure. So let's see. I, I got into the DevOps thing a little over 10 years ago. I was one of those early people. I said, I hate setting up servers, so why don't I just automate this? few years later, I think it was like 2013, I first started working in Amazon, managing EC2, and then around 20, oh man, it would have been 2017, I started fiddling around with Lambda, and I was like, this is pretty freaking awesome, because I really hate servers. 
I really hate taking care of those, even though they like, they, you know, I made a career of doing that. I don't want to do that anymore. So got interested in that. And so, yeah, since 20, mid 2017, I've been in the serverless space. One of the things I've been, as I've gone between consulting, working for people, this, that, the other thing, most of the teams that I've worked with have been new adopters to serverless. So they are. Um, they're teams that have been putting Java or JavaScript into a container, you know, pushing the master, watching CICD, shoot that out, you know, out the pipe and everything like that. And a lot of these teams that I've worked with are now, you know, are people that have been saddled with, Hey, now you have to learn an entirely new, an entirely new architecture, new tools. By the way, here's a new layer of the stack that you need to be responsible for the infrastructure. And probably a few other things we forgot to tell you. And here you go. Off you go. This, this will be easier. So there's a lot of, for a lot of these teams, there's a very big knowledge gap that needs to be addressed and they need someone working with them that can sit there and fill in a lot of these gaps for them. So that's the role I play. You know, you could call me like a staff engineer or something like that. That's usually the level role that I'm at now. And that's where, that's what I'm going to. So yeah, that, that's what I do these days. So as part of that, you know, sort of working with new teams or really sort of watching these teams, I don't want to say struggle, but maybe struggle with going from these, you know, sort of old practices to these new practices using serverless. So maybe start with just like, what does that look like? What does your typical company look like that's going through that transition? I don't, first, I don't think there is a typical company. But one of the things I have noticed is, and, and this is something I think we discussed a few years ago, that serverless, back in like 2017, 2018, we thought serverless was going to be all the rage among the startups. And it really wasn't. It ended up becoming more so at, at the top, the big enterprises. And, it, and it's kind of working its way down. So that's, and so those are a lot of the people. And again, I've worked with, I've worked with small companies, startups, and, and the enterprise. So I, I've, I've seen both ends. So that, so yeah, there is no typical company, but particularly the enterprise, you have folks that are in a large company. They have been doing things a certain way for, for quite a while. And they're now, you know, they're now being tasked with change. So it might not just be, you know, an, an architecture change. It's part of say digital transformation or, or service modernization. So, you know, it's, it's all, it's tied together with these larger initiatives. I want to follow up on that. I mean, I was also working at AWS on the serverless team, right? And we had a definitely sort of like messaging for enterprise and messaging for startups and everything in between. And I'm so curious, since you have been in the business for a long time, if you have a why behind, I mean, it was sort of surprising, right? As you said, you thought maybe startups would adopt it first and it would work its way up, but really it started, or you saw the most adoption or desire for adoption through digital transformation at the enterprise level. And then maybe some startups end up using it as well. Do you have a hypothesis or maybe you have like you know, cold, hard facts where you're like, this is actually why it was more adopted at the enterprise level. And here's the reasons why we were surprised, but it, it didn't actually catch fire, let's say in the startup land. I, I think in the startup world, let's start there. I, I think Kubernetes ha was, was just so attractive just because there was the mind share and, you know, you could like, you know, throw a wrench somewhere and hit, you know, some infrastructure person that could set up Kubernetes for you. I, I don't. 
you know, a lot of, it's funny. There's a, there's, 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 um, there, there's a meme where this person has a like toy car and it's on like a giant flatbed truck and they're like, deployed my WordPress instance to, you know, to serverless. And yeah, I, I think there's just this in, in the startup world, it's like, oh, we got, we get, we, we, we do Kubernetes cause we're going to be that big, but we're going to need all of that. And we don't know what we're going to need tomorrow. So we can't tie ourselves into AWS. We need this agnostic platform. So that, you know, and, and I see that appeal, I disagree with it, but I think that's why it's really taken, you know, it's, that's why I think it's still very common in, in the startup world, you know, that this finding the people with the skills is really easy. You can find somebody that knows how to put, how to put some software in a container. You can find an infrastructure person that can set up and run Kubernetes for you. So, all right, cool. Let, let's just go with that. Um, on the, on the enterprise side, the enterprise is really fun. I, I would tell anybody take some time in the enterprise. If you just want to study like organizational culture, like pretend you're an anthropologist, it's really cool. So let I, I can't I'm, tell. I'm I can't to... tell if you're being facetious or not. It... I literally just read to Jeremy. I was like, "Enterprise is really fun." I was like, "This is likely the first time I've actually ever heard this." No, it's it's very it's <laughs> it's so interesting because you start talking when when you look at the enterprise, you're just kind of like, "Well, why is that giant five thousand person organization or fifty thousand person organization making this sort of decision?" And then you have to start kind of going through the org chart and you can actually trace sometimes the logic of certain decisions by looking at the org chart. So my, my favorite is go try and sit there and, and, and sells, you know, a, a, a IT exec on, Hey, well, you know, if you, if you go, if, if you go serverless, great, you can, you can transfer headcount and resources over into, into development, you know, the people that make money, take stuff out of the stuff that costs money to run. And it sounds like a compelling argument, right? You know, who doesn't want to make more money and spend and spend less money, you know, running all that stuff. It's great until you realize that, yeah, the people that like, you know, do the development and the people that do the operations are two completely separate, like separate, you know, like VPs or something like that. And. No, and for each of them, it's, 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 it's amazing that like for each of them, actually that argument doesn't only not resonate, it actually doesn't make sense for them. So you, so, so the person that's, that's running infrastructure, they don't want to give up, you know, their, 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 their budget and all, and like the headcount and stuff like that. So they're incentivized to, you know, let's, let's have, let's, let's have this. And you tell you go to a develop, you go to an enterprise, you know, a de a development VP and they're like, well, I can also use Kubernetes because somebody else is already providing this. And I know I'm just now talking about why people would use Kubernetes instead of serverless in an enterprise, but that's actually one of, that was actually something I saw once before, because it was just the, just the, the org, you know, going through the org chart and trying to, and seeing that like people had different motivations. And people looked at the arguments that we give in, in, in just different terms that we're, that we're, than we're accustomed to. So I think enterprise well, anthropology sounds like a, a really bad yeah. suit shop or something like that. But, it, uh, um, so I, mean, uh, I, think... I just, I just, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think, I think, you know, if, if the reason I say go into the, go into the enterprise and it's just, once you start seeing like an org chart, you can understand how decisions get made and it's fascinating, completely fascinating to understand all this stuff. 
But why would a well, but you know, why would a why would a development team inside an enterprise go serverless? One of the reasons is you will have other you will have other IT executives who will disagree with that, you know, with with the uh, with that first executive's thinking that sure we can just have that other group run all our infrastructure. You'll have another team that says no, but we actually want to be more nimble. You know that 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 infrastructure and IT group is serving a five thousand person organization, and you're a small hundred to maybe two hundred person development team. It's kind of like, well, would it be pretty cool if we could actually just have, you know, if we could respond more, more quickly to our own needs instead of having to filter everything through them. So that is, again, so that's one reason why it, within an organization, yes, you can definitely, you will see teams adopting, you know, the, you know, serverless within the enterprise. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's a, something in there too, about sort of total cost of ownership and how that plays in. I mean, I would think that as a startup. You'd look at it and you'd say, yeah, maybe I can get somebody to set up Kubernetes. And I think the meme you're referring to was that, you know, something on the back of like a tiny car on the back of a yep. flatbed truck. And it was like, you know, and I think it was deployed to Kubernetes, not deployed to serverless, right? Like you're basically over-provisioning what right. you need in order to run this tiny little workload. But I think you make some good points. I mean, about, you know, enterprises or, you know, different organizational units and the politics that are involved with organizations or with enterprises where it's like, we don't want to give up our budgets. We don't want to yeah. give up people. You know, we want to keep these things here. And if you can't keep those people busy, you know, because there's things to do, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of interesting. But what do you think about from the sort of a TCO standpoint? I mean, operationally, an enterprise has sometimes that different mindset where they say, well, we already have this massive IT department that can right. run Kubernetes clusters and can do all these things for us. So we're not saving anything um, other than, you know, repurposing those people, which we maybe don't want to do. So instead, you know, if our developers can work a little bit faster, like that's really not, you know, why would we want to have that control? So I don't know. How do you think that plays into it? You know, I, I think something that, you know, I, I've tried to kind of hammer into folks you know the, these teams that they're newly adopting is you sh you should be seeing you should be seeing faster delivery you should be see you know you should be seeing things go to market much faster and understanding that that is helping to bring in you know more revenue you know faster and if if you it you have to i think really get people to understand that because i think that's where the value really is and you have to have your developers to un like understand that you have to have them understand that they should be able to after they start learning these things they should actually start seeing you know for, like quicker progress like they should start seeing that they're um uh oh we're gonna talk about like sprint points and stuff like that they're uh what, what, what are those what are those like agile or scrum things that story they story points yeah story points and burn down burn and, down and charts, yeah. lines, all that stuff but, like you should see all those things improving that's what you really want to see and start getting out of it. And I totally skipped the TCO stuff only because it, in a giant enterprise, nobody shows you the belt. Right. <laughs> you're, you're a team and you're just kind of like, I really don't know how much this costs. I have an idea how much this costs, kind of. But I, 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 like in the funny conversations with somebody's like, but this is going to cost like 500 bucks to, a month to run. It's like, well, is that expensive? Right. And they're like, I don't know. It's like never too high. I'm pretty sure that system over there like takes like a mi a million dollars a month. So, yeah, I think that's also an interesting thing because you could you can have a good idea for how much something costs, 
But if you don't have that in context of the business, you actually don't know how much it costs because you're like, I can know the true number, yep. but without having it in stark relief against the landscape of everything that everything costs or understanding. And I'm not saying that all businesses and organizations should be like, here's our exact line by line item to every team. That's just like a lot of mental overhead. But it is hard to know how much something costs without understanding its relative cost in terms of what the business or organization is spending its money on. Or, 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 or even the value of just how much that thing is bringing in. Yeah, you I know? think without, right. yeah, the cost and the value are certainly yeah. different things, but they're also extremely related to be like, okay, yep. like if it's something is a million dollars, but the value is like, you know, $6 billion, I just made that number up, then that's obviously like a big cost for a much bigger reward. And then that could all go all the way down to like, well, you can spend $10 on something, but if you legitimately get zero value out of it and no impact at all, then like, well, why are we even doing that? Yep. And, and, and I, th I think with your, I think with your more advanced engineering organizations, they're going to be having these conversations and they're going to start focusing on, on these things. When you're, when you're just starting off, your problems are going to be, I, th I think, very different. So, so in, in the enterprise, for instance. It's not enough to just be able to figure out, you know, from, from Amazon documentation and blog posts, how to configure something. There's how to configure it. So it also complies with, you know, IT, you know, security and all the compliance needs that your organization has. I, I want to deploy this thing correctly because if I don't, it's going to get deleted on me after it gets deployed, which is not fun. And, you know, so, so there's that. And there's also just the, you know, taking on the new responsibilities and, and, and having to understand things like, you know, you might have a developer before that never had to care. How, you know, how, how does a customer's request make it to my service? It's like, it, you know, on, on a diagram, we'll just be thick figure customer. And we just put a cloud for the internet and we just draw an arrow to our service. And it's like, yeah, no, no, like... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot when of you stuff. When you put it like that. Through. Right. It went through a lot of stuff. You know, it was you, know, you spent you know, four years in college learning how to do that. I mean, that <laughs> seems ridiculous. Yeah, you've got, you got, you have a, yeah, there's a WAP in there and there's some like routing in for things, some network segments, but that's stuff they've never had to care about. And now all of a sudden you're like, okay. You're going to put something in front of the internet. You have to put, you have to configure your own WAF, your own content distribution, your own this, that, the other thing. By the way, you need to know how like, you know, the VPC is configured with, within your, your account. And it's like, wow, that's a lot to throw at somebody who's just been, you know, jamming JavaScript into a container and, and pushing it out the prod. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You talked about in, maybe mature or, or or engineering organizations that are well-versed in this stuff. That's one thing, but that now we're talking about these early or these people that are just getting started with it. So what are some of those common pitfalls and traps that early adopters fall into? What are some more of those? Give us a lay of the land here. Let's see. Let, let, let me think of, of some of the things I've experienced. Actually, let's, let's start with this. The first thing I think most people do is, we, we, you know, we, we talked about lift and shift as, you know, picking up software and just moving it to the cloud. But there's also this lift and shift of people just picking up their skills and moving it over to serverless saying, yep, I'm going to do things the, the, the exact way I've been doing, the exact way I know, and I'm just going to change the technology. And that is, that is one of the, the first things to address. So I, I'm always adamant about like, please, please don't go down the route of like trying to recreate AWS on your laptop so that you can do all your testing there. I, I, yeah, I, I'm with Ben Kehoe on that. Let's, let's, let's not do that. 
also, if, if you're, you know, I, I'm in the camp of, yeah, unit tests are nice, but the only reason I, the only reason I write unit tests is because I really want to get like the stupid errors caught really quickly. I just want to know that like that, that I'm not going to get some stupid syntax failure or basic logic failure once it gets deployed. And, you know, to me, it's, you know, if, if you've heard the testing pyramid where the bottom is all these fat unit tests, somebody told me the, te the testing hexagon where it's, it's smaller number of unit tests, wide on integration tests, smaller number on, um, for ETE. So that's, so yeah, picking, you know, people picking up their skills and just dragging them over without rethinking things is definitely the first, first thing. Another is you put, actually my favorite, this is, this is still my favorite. If, if you're working with a, with a team that's completely new to, you know, to serverless, building their first application. If it has DynamoDB, don't tell them about, about setting the billing mode. Don't let them find that one on their own. Let them find, you know, that if, Hey, if you need to configure this, it's going to be a paper request. By the way, there's only going to be, was it, what's the default? Like five, five, if five you I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> five read and write capacity units. And, and that's a, that's a fun, I, that's, that's a fun one. And that's a reason I also, that's a reason I, I, I very big on testing is because, Hey, I want you to figure out how to do load testing because I want you to find this before it goes to production. And I don't want to also, I, I can, I can interject myself and say, Hey, you did that wrong. You missed that. But all I've done is covered one thing. You know, I, I've, I've, I've covered one issue that you will hit with DynamoDB. I'd rather you learn how to do this, all this other testing. So when I'm not there or there's something I forgot or something I missed, you could catch that. Right. Right. So, but what, but how do they learn that? Like, what are the learning paths now? I mean, I think we, you know, AWS has certifications, things like that. And, you know, there's other trainings available, but I mean, how are companies, certainly the ones that you've been working with, how are they learning that? Are they going on getting AWS certs? Are they, you know, just, are they organizing things internally? Are they just reading documentation on their own? Are they hitting up against this DynamoDB charging me for things, even though I'm not using it or whatever, and, 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 and figuring out these things on their own. Like what is, what is that path for people? All of the above. The path is yes. So, uh, I I've done, I I've helped people through, uh, I've helped people through getting certification, big shout out to a cloud guru, very helpful. I will say though, that the, the SAA cert, I, I, in retrospect, I would do the, uh, the developer associate first. I think that's probably a better, a better direction. Let's see. So, so there's that there's another, I've also at one, one point developed a, I developed a training, like a, a, a training syllabus that was designed for a group of people to be able to go through over the course of say like a quarter, it was, it was sprint stories and it was, you know. Here's how you gradually, you know, you know, sprint by sprint, build your application. And that was, it was broken down so that people could take their, um, their enrichment time. So that, so that Friday, every one or two weeks, and they could work on this. So that's, that, that's another path there. The, I, I see a lot of folks that want to put production, like they want to build production applications with their, with, with, with this new technology, I, I've never been a fan of that. Like, I don't understand, like you're, you're just learning a brand new technology. Do you really want to put that in front of a customer? Especially if you, particularly if you have a very large customer base. So I'm a very much a fan of, you know, if, if, if you have a culture where people are building 
you know, small, you know, small service, small internal services, Slack bots, things like that, or if they should just make, you know, life around the company or department easier. Those are the first places to start, like do that and, and, and get, you know, get, get your, get your feet wet before you decide, Hey, let's, let's, let's re-architect that system over there with a completely new architecture and then put it in front of customers. I, I also have a new thing that I, I've, I, I've recently discovered the glory of step functions. Mm. Oh my God. They are amazing. Yes, they, they, they are. I, 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 I love it. And I, I'm, I'm even starting to think now that particularly these things that don't have to go in front of a customer, skip Lambda, go right to step functions. Like don't even let people pick up and bring their, their development patterns over. Like give them something brand new, like, Hey, here's a bunch of YAML. Now you're going to build an application with, with YAML. It's, I, I, I think, it, I think it gets, I, I, I think it, again, it prevents people from just picking up and blindly transferring their skills over it. It forces people to get out of their comfort zone. So, so if you, you know, if you, you're working with Lambda, you're, and you've also, but you've got these other infrastructure things to solve. You're probably going to look at Lambda first and solving those development issues because that's, that's the code is the domain that, you know, if you take that away now, it's like, okay, now we're going to introduce you to things like, you know, configuring services, event-driven architecture, this, that, the other thing. So I'm, I'm really keen to try that in my next place of just, yeah, skipping Lambda and just going straight for step functions and, and see how that works out. Hot takes from Tom McLaughlin yeah. in the few weeks that we had to be able to get him before he's at this next role. So the path is yes. I wrote that in all caps on Jeremy and I's shared. It that's you've like really dropped some some memorable bumper stickers here today. So thank you for that. Hi everyone. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, DexSecure. DexSecure empowers web developers by automating tasks that are essential for every website, freeing up developer time to focus on building. DexSecure currently has three products to help your team. Their web asset optimizer optimizes content like HTML, images, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, videos, and more. Their third-party optimizer takes care of all your third-party assets, and their intelligent network optimizer enhances the performance and resiliency of your website. DexSecure also has an open source product called OpenDexSecure, a cloud agnostic edge development framework. Now, what I love about OpenDex is that the developers can jump straight into product building and not worry about dealing with setup and all the other roadblocks that come from the complexity and configurations of other popular CDNs. If you're interested in trying DexSecure's products, you can for free. Just visit DexSecure's website at DexSecure.com to sign up and learn more. That's D-E-X. E-C-U-R-E dot -E com. Okay, so I want to talk about roles and responsibilities. And that sure. I'm I just trying to make that sound as dry as possible. But I work <laughs> at Common Room and we're, if I do say so myself, a very rad startup. I love being here. And something that we talk about you a lot. You like people business radical? Oh, wait, you're, you're not even in an office, so. Oh, I actually am right now, if you can't you tell. Aha. Uh -huh. But oh. um, is business yeah, radical an accepted really cool uh, form of form of dress? Um, yeah, we're so, really good in the medium that doesn't have video, <laughs> right? No, it looks great. Let me tell the listeners, you look great in that blue velour tracksuit. It, it becomes you. 
So we talk a lot about, in, in a startup situation at least, right? And I think this happens a lot, but we talk a lot about that line between player coach and everyone, you know, you, maybe you're a manager, but you're also like, you're not just coaching because you also need to play because you definitely need to be like be in there, like doing what all the other players are doing. Because mm-hmm. there's not enough people to just necessarily be like, cool, go do this thing. And like, I will simply look from here. But there's these ideas around like, what is the right balance between being a player and a coach? And I think this can be, um, you know, said in a lot of different ways or, or thought about in a lot of different ways where it's like, it's just the idea of trade-offs, right? And what happens, like how clear is the line between two separate entities trying to do two separate things? So if startup developers are, you know, the Jack and Jill, the player coach, the, the everything of all trades, when it comes to like being responsible for new areas of an application, like what happens when there are clear lines between developers and operations? And where is that line? Is it dev line ops? Is it DevOps? There is no line. Is it what line should people be aiming for in terms of even thinking through at that high level, like what it means to be a developer in this new space as an early adopter or someone stepping into serverless? You know, I, I, I really don't know what it is. I, I, I don't know where the, lo- I don't know where the lines really are. The one, I think the one thing I would say is if I were still primarily on the ops side, which I'm not anymore, I, I t- you know, I'm an infrastructure engineer, I'm an operations person, but I work more with, with, with development teams. If, if I was an operations person, the thing I would want to do is probably move towards something like an enablement team. And I want to get out of fixing things and I want to move more towards building the tools that can, you know, that, that can 10x myself. I, I, want, I, want to, I want you to be able to download my know-how and be able to, and, and, and be able to use that without me being there. So that, that could be you know, that there's. I mean, a lot, a lot of places have this, you know, it's developer experience, developer enablement, they're building tools. They're maybe building CDK constructs that have best practices in them. So as, as an operations person, that's probably the direction I want to go because once you, uh, once, once you got a team that's, you know, there it's Lambda, it's API gateway, GraphQL, there's CloudFront, DynamoDB. They're responsible for to keep for keeping that up and running, and you as an operations person, there really isn't much for you to do. So, so yeah, that's why like you know the line they're 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 the line is just so far over for these development teams that they've you know, just usurped what my you know my old job would have been. You know, you were actually giving me um I actually thought you were going to go a different direction with this question. I really did. I was actually just off to the side googling it. You, you're go talking on. about the, play, the the player coach and roles and responsibilities. I, I thought you were going to st- just start talking about. Um, so yeah, so so what I do because I'm not I'm usually not tied directly to a team, and it remi- and so I thought you were going to go there. And the book I was bringing up is the Staff Engineer by Will Larson. That is an awesome book. I, I you know anybody that is you know s- you know senior and wants to go post senior, or even if, even if you're just somebody that wants to go to a post senior, I see leadership role. That is such a great book. It, it is, it is a tremendous help for understanding your role now. You know, once you, once you leave the confines of a single team and you're responsible for, for broader things, your, your, your job just changes so much and it becomes so different. And then you have to just figure out how to navigate that stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of those things as you graduate beyond, you know, just working on individual teams, supervising multiple teams, or even getting into strategy and things at higher sure. levels and trying to coordinate that stuff. It gets uh, it gets pretty complex. But I, I want to go back sort of to, I, I think, to Rebecca's question a little bit here. And it's something that you said where the developers have come so far into the ops world that basically there wasn't a lot for you to do. But then on the other side of this thing, because I know the stuff that you've done in the past, you've written a lot of code. So you go from managing infrastructure to then going and writing a whole bunch of code. And so there's this crossover where it's like mm -hmm. devs to ops and ops to devs and somewhere in between, maybe there's a thing called DevOps, I don't know. But like, I'm just curious, you know, that is an interesting, an interesting shift in responsibility, right? And I think that, you know, we've talked to charity majors about this as well, where it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not about less ops, it's about better ops, maybe where your ops people are freed up to do more interesting things, including the things you mentioned, like writing automation scripts and all kinds yep. of things that they can do. But I'm just curious, like, when that happens, you know, where is the, or what's the, uh, or I should say maybe is there a contention there? Is it something where dev, as devs become more responsible for the infrastructure they control, that ops teams have to look at their roles differently? Is there a contention there? Is there a way to make that smoother? Or is that just, you know, is that just growing pains? So there are growing pains. I think something to i think something for these ops people to be aware of if you find yourself writing building more tools writing more code all that sort of stuff at the end of the day you're building a product it doesn't matter if if your if your product is you know just internal developers you're still building a product which means i don't have to use your product so you as the operations person doing software development you need to also figure out how do, how do I get people to use these tools that I, that I, that I'm using? So that's an, that's another, I think, bigger shift for ops people. There's no more, well, we said, that's how you have to do it. So that's how you have to do it. It's now, you know, if it's, you don't want it, if, if somebody doesn't want to use your tools and do it your way, they're going to ignore you. So I completely so lost my train of thought there, but. No, no, we just, uh, we are a little slow on the uptake to like, we're like, we could have cut you off with a question, you know, and then it would have seemed like you didn't lose your train of thought. So we'll just <laughs> cut this out and no one will ever know. Um, so where do you see that separation today with teams embracing serverless, right? Like how specialized should someone be when you walk into a place and they're sort of that, you know, they're the early adopters or they're trying to be early adopters within an organization. Do you set up guidelines or guardrails around like, hey, this is how the new world order works. Um, this is how you can, here's a, a frameworked way for you to think about responsibility. So first off, it, it you know, it, it's, I, I'm very interested in where I'm going next because it sounds like it's going to be a bit different from where I came from in terms of attitude towards ado adopting new things. And it's not, you know, it's not like bad, you know, new things bad versus new things good. It's just the, how you go about it. First thing, first thing I would say is. If, if you're going to adopt some new sort of technology, get some people in the door that actually know the technology, like get a few specialists in there that, that really know it, you know, uh, they, 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 there, there is a real good use for specialists. They will save you so much time because they know the technology well, and, and, and they will show people how to do things well, instead of forcing everyone to kind of learn as they go and hopefully, you know, pick up all the best practices, but sometimes not. 
The next thing is that, you know, and, and, and organizations vary with, with this. There are organizations that emphasize that they're, they're organizations that emphasize everything is, you know, everything is best done when it comes up from the team, when it bubbles up from, from a single team. And so in those organizations, everybody kind of, you, you can try and hurt the cats, but a lot of people are just going off in their own direction, doing their own thing. If you have an organization where, 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 you know, you can easily share learnings and people adopt, like pick up learnings from other teams, maybe that can work. Hopefully it's with people that, you know, also have some sort of specialist that's guiding them. The, the other direction there, the other approach is something that, I, that my, my preference is we want to limit, we, we want to put, we want to put limits and constraints in what developers are doing. And we want us, you know, we want to pick the tool. We don't want to say, Hey, there's a, there's a plethora of, of serverless tools, serverless frameworks, SAM, uh, CPK, instead of saying, Hey, each team pick whatever you want and just do it. Instead, you say it like an apartment level. No, we're picking one and that's what everyone is going to use. And we're picking, you know, we're picking certain languages and those are the ones we're going to use. Because if you do, when you do that, now you can start actually building, you know, cohesive, you can start building training much easier for people. Because every, if, if you've got like all your teams on the same page, it's a lot easier to train that department than every, than, you know, having every single, every single team operating as their own, like little mini Republic. So you mentioned that, you mentioned that book, uh, the staff engineer. But who else, who else would you say that you sort of admire? Like which, I mean, maybe what companies, which companies are doing this right? Or like what people are writing about this? I'm sure you probably read Accelerate, things like that. But I mean, where, where are the examples to look at? Like who are the, who are the role models that, that new companies that are adopting or companies that are adopting serverless should be following? So I got, I got an interesting take on this. Everybody's lying. Everybody is like, everyone's telling you that everything's going great. When, when actually in the, in the organization, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's like fireworks going off in all sorts of different directions. That's just, the, that is really just the way it is. It's very hard for me to sit there and say, oh, you want to look at that organization or you want to look, look at that, that, that person. There you mean, I mean, I, I definitely say, look at all, look at all the AWS heroes. My buddy, Matt Coulter, who I, who I know well, we won't say why, but he, uh, he, I uh, mean, he knows his stuff quite well. Jeremy, you know, your stuff quite well. You're one of the people I go to Ben Kehoe is another person that I look for anything he says, but really, I think what you, you kind of have to do is take everything that we say and then, you know, try ideas out and see what works for you within your organization. If, if you have a, you know, start with, a, you know, have an idea of where you want to get and take the ideas that you see they all uh, being floated around and take, you know, take, take everything that we say and experiment and try it out and say, does this work in my organization? Because there are things that will work in your organization that don't work in another organization or vice versa. So as, as you know, so you're just gonna have to experiment and figure out what they all, what, what, what fits for you folks. Thank you for that. I love hearing from from people who they admire, whether or not it's like the way an organization or a company is running or the individuals that they follow and learn from. I think it's like that's also how we begin to follow and learn from new individuals by, you know, word of mouth. Like, hey, who have you learned from that I can learn from, too? I did 
noticed that you mentioned Ben Kehoe and Matt Coulter and Jeremy. I didn't hear my name, so we're just, it's fine. We're going to move right through that. Um, but I have the power here we, we to end met, this we conversation. First, we first <laughs> met because of SAR, and I thank you for that very much. Not the, uh, not the disease, still, by the way. Uh, he's talking about the uh, service application. I, I still <laughs> love, sir. I still love the idea of service application. The idea is right. The idea is yeah, right, yes. for sure. It, I, I I really do, and I I, was, I have to thank you because again, like you you were really the first you were really the first Amazon people that ever reached out to me. I think. Good, so, I'm so glad. Yes, yeah. well, part of my role there, right, was like finding neat people doing neat stuff, and then just I'm... persistently DMing and saying like, <laughs> "Hey, do you want to talk now?" Hey, <laughs> and you know maybe that just suits my personality. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your knowledge, joining us at thank this you. moment in your life where. You're you're able to be open and have this conversation, especially like reflective as you move into your next role. I think we're super excited to do what you to see what you do there. Although um, it sounds meantime, like his cat, his cat might be a corporate agent trying to uh, sabotage. His cat things. is a PR agent from the future. So, Absolutely, you know, that's so, why the cat bit you at a specific moment. It's like too far. Too every far. time I've gone a recording, my cat bites me, and it's <laughs> hey, it, like, cat needs you, that attention, man. When I had the morning show way back, like she would bite me at least once an episode on camera. <laughs> um, well, how can listeners find out more about you? Where should they find out more about you? Where should um, they follow you? And we'll put it yeah, all in the show find notes. Me, find me on Twitter, T-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-B-O-S. I don't have a pronounceable uh, a pronounceable uh, Nick because T-M-C-L-A-U-G-H goes back to the days when you had eight character usernames. So, Yay. and I've had that for a very long time. And I think it's Tara McLaughlin, also, also in Boston, mm. has that on Twitter. So I typed on the BOS. I'm going to get that handle one of these days, you know. TMC Laugh BOS. So yeah. I, used, I always said T McLaugh Boss. And ah. I know that it's your Boston, but I always thought of it as like, like he's a boss, you know? I'm, I'm but like, boss. just yeah, from Boston. <laughs> T McLaugh Boss. Well, uh, Tom, we've got your LinkedIn um, and a few other things here that we will make sure that we put in the show notes. Thanks again. This was awesome. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Tom McLaughlin for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, DeckSecure. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 129. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sound up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter, at Becca Odele, and me, at Jeremy underscore Daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.